Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the podcast that thinks all ideologies should reveal themselves in a straightforward way. Ideology? Yeah, I was going to say ideology ideology or ideology. ideology. Like, let's be. (laughs) I learned the word when, like, I watched the Zizek movie about it. And he was always saying, like, ideology. So now I say ideology ideology. and I sound like a dumb dumb. Okay. okay. Uh, Well, today we're going to be discussing a very sneaky ideology (laughs) called neoliberalism. That's right. On the show with us is me, Ambria. Laura. Hope. And Melita. Oh. So for the first part of our discussion, we're going to talk about neoliberalism. What is it? And how did it happen? Oh, slowly and over time, like a slow death. That's <laughs> All right, that's it. Thank All right. right. Thank you so Thank much you. for listening, <laughs> and we'll see you next week. <laughs> uh, Patreon is, uh, is open and ready for you to give us money on. Yeah. You can follow us we described on Twitter. It. We described it pretty much uh, the way uh, actual neoliberals understand it. So, mm. um, <laughs> so okay. So let's get into this. Neoliberalism. Neoliberalism. We hear this word so much. Uh, what the hell does it mean? Um, well, another name for neoliberalism is something uh, you might have heard described by its other term, late capitalism or delayed capitalism, right? The end stages of uh, an overburdened capitalist system. Late capitalism is a stage of capitalism in its final form where it begins to devour itself. Uh, So what does that mean? Late capitalism is the stage uh, that has reached beyond industrialization. So we have massive surpluses and all aspects of human life have been commodified. Think food, shelter, healthcare, school, everything that you need for life costs uh, money. So to understand this, we should first look at what capitalism offered in terms of production. Um, You know, it was known for liberating people from the servitude of serfdom uh, and the peasantry, right? At least in social order. And within that social order, a working class was created uh, in order to be the producers for the capitalists, you know, with their labor for the owning class and the class that owned the means of production, right? Those are the capitalists. From these forces of production, which were competitive as they are under a capitalist system, meaning production was created for profit. And if a firm could not compete on these terms, it would fail. Over time, this created an accumulation of wealth in the hands of the owner or capitalist class, and in turn then created governance structures sort of around them, right? Property rights, how to order government, layers of bureaucracy, military, all that kind of thing, sort of protect and create the structures around that ownership of property. In our context, uh, for today, around the mid-1900s, a mixed economy where some planning was required. Uh, Laura, I believe, will talk about Keynes a little bit later, Mm -hmm. the main thinker behind this idea. Workers captured a larger share of the wealth. So you saw like an explosion of union rights and labor rights and, you know, the tax rate, as we all know, as we've all heard a million times, is 95 percent in the top, uh, you know, the richest people. Um, But what happens when workers create capture a larger share of the wealth they create that they create that leads to a profit squeeze right because that's where 
profit comes from. And it created this profit squeeze for the capitalists through high taxes, strong unions, strong regulations. You know, workers were simply becoming wealthier at the expense of the capitalist bottom line. Mm -hmm. Now, if that kept going and growing, the capitalist system itself would collapse. Without the profits growing and returning to the capitalists, there really isn't capitalism. So by the time we get to Reagan, um, sort of a post-civil rights era, we see major assaults against government spending. This really started with Nixon and really hit its peak under Reagan. Um, the, there were assaults against government spending on social welfare, uh, as remembered through Reagan's non-existent welfare queen story, you know, like we're spending all this money on social welfare and there's all these like poor and, you know, wink, wink, black right. people that are taking all of this money and having mansions and all these cars. I mean, it didn't really, it didn't exist. Um, so that sort of social storytelling about these social welfare uh, programs, we see an assault on unions as well. Uh, Reagan, I don't know how many of you know this, but he fired every single traffic controller in the country when they went on strike. It was 11,000 workers. He just fired them all mm. by fiat. It rendered the union completely moot. They were individually never allowed to work for the federal government again. He gutted union bar and bargaining protections through his appointments to the National Labor Relations Bureau, uh, the bureau that's like sort of responsible for protecting the rights of workers and their rights to organize unions. The Republican obsession with the Reagan presidency today isn't like only because they shared his racism, which of course he was extremely racist, but he also in essence saved capitalism and pushed it into this late stage, turning the tides of power against workers for generations through what he did. Neoliberalism is the use of the public sector to create the structures and mechanisms to ensure wealth is transferred from the bottom back to the top, rather from the top down. So capitalism now is in that form. It's in that financialization stage, meaning finance is its main mechanism rather than production, right? So we see like um, the all these recessions happening now, the latest one being in 2008 with the collapse of uh, the financial sector. Um, we see it played out in our lives. So anything and everything that belongs to the public, any money that is spent on public goods, things like roads, bridges, water lines, electricity lines, schools, things like that, they're left to rot and privatized where they can be, right? So we pay through it for it through our labor, through our taxes that no longer go back into investment in us or like social investment, but it goes in as profits for the capitalist class. Um, so the goal of funneling all this wealth that we create back upwards is so that the capitalists decide in turn what we should invest in, right? So rather than public transport, they'll invest in rideshare startups. Rather than fix water pipes, they'll bottle it up and sell it right back to us. Rather than public schools, we built privately run charter schools rather than Medicare for all. We have the Affordable Care Act and so on and so forth. We still have this, we still have this privatization of, of all of our needs. And with that, because of that, people are paid less and less. So debt goes back up and up um, and there we become indebted. We see this wealth gap that's created by design through these neoliberal reforms, quote unquote, to commodify and financialize or in debt every single aspect of human life and society. So in a nutshell, that's what it is. It's this late stage and by late we mean recent or delayed uh, stage of capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that there's, well, we'll get into it a little bit more, but I actually would only push back on the idea that Keynes 
would disagree that Reagan saved capitalism, but we can get into that a little bit later. Um, adding to what Walido was saying, uh, you know, neoliberalism can choke and die. <laughs> but seriously, uh, eliminating price controls, deregulating capital markets, lowering trade barriers, and reducing state influence in the economy especially through privatization and austerity, has taken capitalism and just ramped it up to 11. Neoliberalism sees competition as the defining characteristic of human relations. It redefines citizens as consumers, whose democratic choices are best exercised by buying and selling. Like, I think everyone has probably heard people say, like, you can vote with your dollar. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, that's a fucking neoliberal bullshit if I ever heard it. Uh, and... This process rewards merit and punishes inefficiency, and it maintains that the market delivers benefits that could never be achieved by planning. Um, and I want to hit the brakes right there, uh, Laura, because you're starting to get at not just the policies and goals of neoliberalism, like privatization, but the ideology that neoliberalists employ to achieve these goals. And that's an ideology that tries to pose as a lack thereof. And it tries to insist that this redefinition of the citizen that you mentioned, Laura, um, the redefinition of the citizen as a consumer is actually the natural state of things. Mm. And neoliberals are just sort of liberating us. Um, neoliberalism also has a tendency to open up more and more spheres of life to the market. The human herself, you know, becomes not only a consumer in the market, but a market good herself. Um, Wendy Brown talks about this at length in her book, Undoing the Demos, especially as it relates to education. A person, you know, no longer gets an education to expand themselves as a human, as an actor in our society and in our democracy, um, but is now an investment. Um, indeed, one which is invested in by others and then even considers itself to be investing in itself. Um, I'm actually going to stop paraphrasing uh, Wendy Brown and just quote her. To speak of the relentless and ubiquitous economization of all features of life by neoliberalism is thus not to claim that neoliberalism literally marketizes all spheres, even as such marketization is certainly one important fact of neoliberalism. Rather, the point is that neoliberal rationality disseminates the model of the market to all domains and activities even where money is not at issue and yeah. configures human beings exhaustively as market actors always only and everywhere. Mm -hmm. So after this, she goes on to describe how even online dating has often come to be seen in terms of marketing of the self investment and return despite a lack of monetary value. So it's also like this philosophy that ends up inside of our heads uh, making everything seem as though it is part of a marketplace. Mm -hmm. Yep. I'm not sure exactly where this fits in, but um, as you were talking, I was thinking, I wonder um, where kind of data fits into that too, where now that does have a monetary value. So there's maybe even greater potential for the marketization of all domains, since every behavior you're doing now can be tracked and is part of building an idea of who you are and behavior prediction that then becomes like marketable or useful for propaganda. Oh, that's wild. And I think that also does fit in because it's part of this idea that this is a simple evolution in our system. 
it's not carried out by anyone in particular. And I think data gives us kind of maybe the same ability to navigate away from the sense that someone is doing this. Um, and this in my mind is a big connection between classic liberalism and neoliberalism. And maybe like some neoliberalism expert would correct me here. But in my mind, like, just like liberals had these ideals about man's natural right. Yes, man's. I did not misspeak. Um, so too are neoliberals framing neoliberalism as a natural state of things and not a created system. And I think this is why they are so opposed to using the term at all. Because they don't want what they're doing to be identified as anything other than an evolution or a progress that's happening in and of itself. Um, this is also why I think it's really important for us to insist on using the word and to discuss its meaning with rigor and seriousness like we are now. Um, but I'm going to get off actually of my soapbox and let Laura talk about the recent historical development of neoliberalism, um, especially because we're going to talk about the power of neoliberalism's sort of invisibility and ability to absorb other ideologies later on. Totally. Um... Yeah, so essentially these two dudes came up with neoliberalism, like the actual term, in Paris in response to the New Deal policies in the United States. So for me, it feels really important to define and explore Keynesian economics before we really define neoliberalism, even though we've, of course, already started to do that. Um, so there was this dude, John Maynard Keynes, and he saw capitalism and the free trade economy as something that was careening towards socialist revolution. And to a lesser extent, he saw that it was unsustainable in the sense that profits couldn't sustain themselves. So kind of going um, back to what Walido was saying about this governmental management of capitalism actually suffocating capitalism, I think that capitalists who subscribe to Keynesian like the Keynesian economic theories under capitalism would suggest that capitalism can only flourish with government intervention because when we have the extreming of the in inequities that come from uh, neoliberal capitalism, then it's like so ripe for socialist revolution. But so Keynes wanted to build off of what Adam Smith talked about with the invisible hand. Um, so, you know, many uh, capitalists consider Adam Smith to be like the father of modern economics. Um, and it's really interesting because I love when capitalists quote Adam Smith because Adam Smith was also like really against the idea of the corporation. I'm not going to go into that so much. Uh, but uh, Adam Smith obviously talked about the profit motive as the quote unquote invisible hand or the way that we are pushed to behave based on seeking profit. So, John Maynard Keynes was like, mm, we need some government intervention in this profit motive or else the inequities will be too great and social socialist revolution may occur. So Keynes was like, provide more things for the people. And FDR was like, uh, okay, so yeah, I guess I'll do that. I hate communism, so I'm going to listen to this guy. And that's why we got the New Deal. So in a big way, like under the spectrum of capitalism, like if we're thinking of capitalist ideologies um, without like switching into socialism, you know, you see uh, Keynesian economic theory and neoliberal economic theory on two ends of that capitalist mm -hmm. spectrum. In our um, show notes for this episode, I definitely read, especially the FDR parts where it just said as kind of like an episode of drunk history, 
Yes. I'm ready for it. Like, I um, would love to do it. Um, yeah, okay. I hate communism, so I'm going to listen to this guy. <laughs> uh, this episode of Drunk History needs to happen. I just imagine, you know, some comedian dressed up in some slightly old-timey clothes going, um, we need some government intervention in this profit motive. Uh, or else all the inequities that we come to great and socialist revolution may occur in, like, Laura's drunk voice, you know, yes. coming out some you know get at us peeps on comedy central (laughs) anyways the term neoliberalism was coined at a meeting in paris in 1938 among uh these delegates were these two men who came to define the ideology ludwig von mises and Friedrich hayek both exiles from austria they saw social democracy exemplified by franklin roosevelt's new deal as the gradual development of britain's welfare state as manifestations of a collectivism that occupied the same spectrum as nazism and communism which is also like hilarious to me in the sense that you know there's a lot of rhetoric that was like obama's a socialist and all this stuff like anyone who has any sort of governmental intervention like can be uh, portrayed in that way by the media and by right-wing nutjobs. But we have to remember that government intervention within the capitalist system is still capitalism. Um, It's just a more regulated version of it that John Maynard Keynes really kind of came out with during that time. Yeah, and I wanted to add here, we could do like a whole show just probably on the history of neoliberalism. Um, But although I think we've seen the term more in the mainstream, probably in the last three to four years, I saw it a ton in mainstream media articles in like 2016. Um, Mm -hmm. The steaming piles of neoliberalism in practice have pretty much always been around. So, for example, when Bill Clinton was running in 1992, um, he touted a new approach to government offering more empowerment and less entitlement that expands opportunity, not bureaucracy. And I think we kind of all know what he's getting at there. And we've seen tons of examples in politics since then, too. So there's this, like, historical context for it, um, and it's just something that is so pervasive. Totally. Well, I mean, and he was, like, the author of NAFTA, and so it's just, like, NAFTA is neoliberalism at its finest as well. The beautiful beautiful thing about stuff like NAFTA is that it transcends political parties, right? Mm. Like... It, it started under Republican sort of negotiation and was signed into living in, under Clinton's uh, Clinton's administration because because they have the same neoliberal economics. I mean, the old school Republicans, uh, I'm not talking about the modern fascist ones that are like have taken over the party. Um but like the Bushes and the Reagans, um, yeah, they were racist and and they were certainly uh, had authoritarian tendencies. But at, at the bottom, the bottom line of their economics was was neoliberal economics, and it and it poured into the Clinton administration. It poured into Bush too. It poured into the Obama administration. I mean, calling Obama a socialist was always very hilarious, because. Yeah, like you said, it's it's n- government intervention is is a Keynesian capitalist approach mm-hmm. to upholding it, and mm-hmm. s- rather than rather than deconstructing it and destroying it. Uh, and the the, yeah. the idea that bureaucracy is like something that they don't want, like Clinton saying, is ridiculous because mm-hmm. the bureaucracy is what protects them. The bureaucracy and the structures around that is what is what sets it all in stone. I mean, they created a whole new Department of Homeland Security in the year 2002. That's massive government bureaucratic expansion. When they say they don't want bureaucracy, what they're saying is, we don't want the type of bureaucracy that's gonna dole out money to people that need it. Right. 
Yeah, and I mean, the Clinton campaign in 1992 made a concerted effort, like, to specifically hold on to the neoliberal policies that came before that. Um, you know, he kind of can't, ran on a campaign of being different from other Democrats in that specific way. Um, not to say that that Democrats were really, like, uh, super for the people before then, but, you know, I think it definitely was a concerted shift that we haven't been able to rein back in since then. I, I truly think, actually in this election and in the 2016 election with the rhetoric of Bernie Sanders is the first time, you know, with him being like, it's not a radical idea. It's not a radical idea. <laughs> like all of these things yeah. are actually normal things in other countries. And he's yeah. like actually kind of bringing back that rhetoric that like, you know, Bill Clinton kind of took from the democratic party and just swung completely. Right. Yeah. So I think we wanted to kind of like, that was where, you know, our first part was really like, what is neoliberalism and how did it happen and where did it come from? And we kind of wanted to switch into why is it so powerful? So for me, um, and I think for a, a lot of us with what we're kind of getting into here, one of the main reasons why neoliberalism is so powerful is because it is so fucking sneaky. It like really obscures everything. So, you know, there are many parts of neoliberalism that are like very visible and clear, but the entirety of globalized capitalism right now is so wrapped up in neoliberalism and so much of that is very much dark or hidden from the public eye. So I kind of wanted to illustrate this using a, an example um, that I think we can all get down with because we all have a smartphone. Um, this is this is the way that I teach this to my teens, but I do think <laughs> like it it is really helpful as like a concrete example of one way that this shows up. Um, so we all have a smartphone, you know, imagine how many cell phones there are all over the fucking world. So to make a cell phone, there are some major steps that need to happen. First of all, a bunch of minerals need to be mined for all electronics. Um, the major ones are tin, tungsten, tantalum, and gold. One of the main areas that these four minerals are mined is in the eastern provinces of the Democratic Republic of Congo, or DRC, called North and South Kivu. In these provinces, people are enslaved by armed militias to work in the mines, and sexual violence is often used to keep the enslaved people in line. The UN was like, oh, whoa, 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 crimes against humanity are being carried out in the Congo, so we're going to stop anything from being exported out of that whole country. And the armed militias were like, LOL, that's cute. Um, and they expanded their reach, smuggling those four minerals, tin, tungsten, tantalum, and gold, across the border into neighboring countries of Rwanda and Uganda. So that those nations technically are the exporters of those four minerals. Then the minerals are shipped to Southeast Asia, where they are smelted together with the same raw minerals, mostly from areas like Australia, which makes it hard but not impossible to trace where the original minerals come from. After the smelting process, those minerals are shipped again to China, where they're manufactured in plants with workers being paid absolutely abysmal rates. Um, and then those factory workers put together the circuit boards that are in all of our electronic devices that we use all the freaking time. And companies like Apple and Nokia make out like bandits in terms of profits by selling those devices all over the world. Um, and I, I just wanted to kind of like have this example because... There are a lot of ways that neoliberalism, neoliberalism shows up, uh, particularly when it comes to marketing and stuff like that, which we'll get to in a little bit. But I do think just the expansive nature of globalization as well is like 
in and of itself a form of neoliberalism. Yeah, people have borders, but capital does not. Right. Um, speaking of borderless capital, uh, let's talk a little bit about the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank. So we've all heard of these uh, institutions. Um, they help, what they do is they help globalized capital. So capital that just moves across borders to find, uh, you know, find new homes for, for all of this uh, new investment and enshrine neoliberal, specifically in neoliberal reforms, where they invest and they lend. So it is, it is part and parcel to imperialism, right? So imperialism is a major part of the last, uh, stages of capitalism as it seeks, as capital seeks out newer markets and cheaper labor. Once it's domestic labor forces, you know, quote, wealthy enough to demand living wages and better quality of life, profits can be massively increased through expanding abroad. Uh, so this is one of the main reasons why international labor solidarity is so important because a worker exploited anywhere means a worker can be exploited everywhere. Um, the IMF and the World Bank specifically provide a sort of legal cover and structure for its investors, uh, governments and multinational corporations are its main investors, and they go into third world or under-industrialized nations, um, like Laura was just referencing, in, in Central Africa. They lend money to these far poorer governments, and in exchange, the IMF requires a private of that country's economy and, in essence, free access to all of its natural resources and labor pools. So a, a country will move into some, some country somewhere that has a natural resource that it wants. It will lend its poor government all of this money and it'll say, hey, by the way, let us write you, basically, let us write your laws. Let us write your laws that govern uh, what property rights are, what taxes should look like, what your wages should be. Um, and, uh, of course, they write these laws in their own favor, um, so they get cheap labor and unlimited access to these natural resources. None of that money get back, gets invested back into the people that are actually living there, uh, whose natural resources these are. Um, and, you know, it, it, that, that's what it does. So, so capital, in essence, moves across borders to indebt and indenture an otherwise sovereign nation's resources and people. It's one of the main reasons why, despite being one of the most resource abundant and naturally wealthy continents, so many African nations remain impoverished. European and American wealth is built on its resources. Yeah. Uh, one, one term that we talked about when I was in undergrad uh, in environmental studies was the natural resource burden. Um, and it's absolutely related to all of these things that Alita is talking about, like most of the resource rich um, nations around the world are the ones that suffer the most. And of course, there's a lot more that have to do with like colonialism and imperialism and all of those things as well. Um, but at the same time, you know, if we are to just think about what it means to have natural resources and what that could mean for a country uh, versus what it actually means for a country. Um, so neoliberalism makes it challenging for us to understand as consumers where the profit is derived along the way. So I, I like really wanted to go on a rant about this because it fucking makes me so pissed it's one of my like Go off. it's one Go of off my like <laughs> it's one of my like pet peeves about libs I mean like I have so many but like 
I think that neoliberalism shows up in the ways that corporations are now advertising to us. So I kind of like hinted at this earlier. So for example, the reason why people are obsessed with plastic straws right now is because the corporations who are benefiting from the continued exploitation of the planet and people are like, yeah, 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 let's focus on the fucking plastic straws. And now the billions of dollars that we are, and not the billions of dollars that we are sinking into anti-capitalist lobbies every year or the influence we have at the IMF. Neoliberal capitalism is an expert, you know, not to humanize this ideology, but y'all know what I mean, at obscuring the real issue, uh, like what the real issue is with something. So to make a bunch of libs obsessed with plastic straws instead of overthrowing capitalism is part of their agenda. You still have to buy cardboard straws, and it's just like, oh, it fucking, it's just such a distraction from what the real issue is. Yeah, I was just thinking about this at the coffee shop yesterday, even though I feel like this is kind of like sounding like stoner thoughts. But yeah, plastic straws are bad in the way that all single-use plastic is bad. But why is the proposed solution for most people acknowledging that some people physically need to use straws to drink? But for everybody else, why isn't it just drink from a cup? Like that would mean (laughs) no one buying anything to solve that issue. So not only do we have like metal straws, and I know if I buy a metal straw from my coffee shop, I'm going to lose it and have to buy another stupid metal straw. Right. Um, and then like paper straws, and now even like plastic Trump straws and protests are for sale. So whatever. It just irritated me that the solution for this is like, maybe don't have to take your drink on the go. If capitalism wasn't so terrible, and we could have 15 minutes to sit down and drink a coffee like a human being, right. you could just drink from a cup. Um, and anyways, I think straws are bad for your teeth. I also, I have feelings about metal straws, including, and not limited to, um, like what if mold starts growing inside and I can't tell. Um, but (laughs) I, um, I think also it's good to think about for our listeners out there. Why is it that every time we create something good, like a movement for LGBTQ plus people, Um, It becomes commodified and the pride parade has now somehow become something that makes money for people. How come the idea of an activist identity is now something that is marketable somehow? And that's because neoliberalism is very absorbent. You know, Um, it gloms onto things like the environmental movement and it tries to make money off of it. Um, And it tries to keep it from undermining capitalism. Um, it's, the concept, it's like the concept of individual responsibility, right? Like individual feelings, uh, emotions, individual actions will solve a lot of these problems like the straw ban or whatever. Um, when it's a matter of production, it's not a matter of individual lifestyle choices that you make that are going to fix these very structural problems. Absolutely. And you know what? This reminds me, too, of like sort of a a back and forth I had with a friend about how she read an article that said that you should limit your plane rides to like twice a year. And this caused her a lot of guilt about visiting her family. Um, And I was like, I mean, if that's the case, the government should create a law that that rations airline flights and then we don't have to worry about oh, I'm going to deny myself something and then it's not going to make a difference anyway. Anyway, I think this brings us um, to a bigger a bigger point, which is a major hypocrisy of neoliberalism, which is that once again, it frames privatization as liberation. 
So more freedom is allegedly being gained by shifting essential functions away from the government. However, this obviously does not end our need for health care, education, uh, the mail, uh, safe, affordable food. All it does is transfer power from the hands of the government, which in its ideal form is transparent and elected by the people for the people. Dictatorship the, of the proletariat. Yes, ideally. It moves it from that to the hands of private entities, which even in their ideal are private. Companies are run in an authoritarian structure and function. They function solely by the profit motive. Transparency is different than it is for the government. Legal accountability is different. And of course, um, the leaders of companies are unelected and they are not accountable to any public voting body. According to neoliberalism and libertarianism, we affect these leaders with our individual slash collective interaction with the market. And so I think this is why we see a shift away from this idea that as humans, we organize together to make the kind of society that we want and to influence our government to make the kind of society we want. And this idea that if we want to save the environment, we should stop taking showers and using straws. <laughs> stop taking showers. Um, I think we've also been sold on the idea that companies are naturally innovative in the direction of public good, which is not true. Um, and I was thinking, you know, both the natural slowness of democracies. So anyone who's ever been even on like a school board has seen that it just takes longer to do things when you have um, de democratic representation and also corruption that exists both undermine public perceptions about government. Um, and then you have that combined with this idea that like, oh, these companies are the ones that are really innovating and technology is going to save everything. And I just think those things are getting worse perception wise. Yeah, it's a it's a big lie. Um, so yeah, so as Laura and others have pointed out, we are often told about these types of, you know, individual choices we can make to fix all these social economic problems. But through through the material understanding of neoliberalism, which we've been discussing, we better understand the forces of work around us, right? So neoliberalism works best when it keeps class consciousness out of the picture. We're told it provides us with freedom, and by this freedom they mean individual freedom to consume, to buy things, and produce, right? After all, are we free to change jobs whenever we feel like it? Oh, we're not making enough money at this job? Just, just go to a new job. Just get another one that pays more. It's just that easy. Um, neoliberalism's social reforms also take on this character. Uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's individual behavior that's the problem and correcting individual behavior solves the problem. Um, that's why they say people are poor, right? Uh, people are poor because of individual choices, we're told, but the focus on individual choices is a distraction. It is a system that perpetuates poverty by design, uh, just like it is systems that perpetuate our social relations to each other. Um, in the words of uh, Stokely Carmichael, a black socialist who... Uh, was very active during the civil rights movement. He, you know, he understood from whence racism comes. Um, and I want to quote him here. If a white man wants to lynch me, that's his problem. If he's got the power to lynch me, that's my problem. Racism is not a question of attitude. It's a question of power. Racism gets its power from capitalism. Thus, if you're anti-racist, whether you know it or not, you must be anti-capitalist. The power for racism, the power for sexism, comes from capitalism, not an attitude. 
Um, and that just sums up like the the kernel of of the kernel of the thought that undoes neoliberalism at its heart, that it's structural and it's not individual. Um, you know, neoliberalism can be overcome. We name it, like like uh, Ambria said earlier, we name it, we name it as a thing, we shame it, and it can be overcome, but only through class consciousness and a revolutionary rather than a reformist change in social yeah. relations, right? Because a reformist would just bring us back to the Keynesian thing and then it would just recycle all over again. Like, we've already done that shit. Like, exactly. we don't have exactly. time for that. And that's the thing. Like, I was talking to someone the other day about exactly that. And and we were saying, like, you know, if push comes to, ch- to shove and we're with pitchforks uh, at the gates of the capitalist class uh, demanding our wealth be given back to us, they will readily concede um, social welfare to the masses, as long as it doesn't change the power dynamic of the social social relations and, and the relationship to production, right? That's what a reform is. A reform is like what we were saying earlier. It changes these incrementally things incrementally, uh, patches a few holes here and there, where something that's revolutionary changes the power dynamic completely. And that's something that is really going to be hard won. Mm-hmm. So, you know, reform is easy to sell. Healthcare might provide access to health care to more workers and maybe even free for the lowest income. But a revolutionary change is one where the people control the public health, right, for their own benefit. The power shift over this basic need changes from the owners to the workers. Um, that's what we mean by dictatorship of the proletariat that, that uh, I said earlier. Um, neoliberalism can't be incrementally reformed to some final stage where suddenly we've figured it all out and no one is poor and everyone is living their best lives. And it can only, you know, it can only ever cannibalize wealth as it seeks even higher and higher profits and privatizes the needs and suppresses wages so that we take out more and more debt um, as the working class until there is no wealth left for anyone but the capitalists. And that's something we literally see in the current and ever-growing wealth gap. Yeah. And I just want to add that um, there, you know, especially as we're in election season, it is important that we understand that right now in the United States, politics, um, electoral politics are... Um, playing a capitalist game. So even Bernie Sanders, like anything that he's doing is calculated within this system. And like, while I have the most hope that he will be the one that we can continue to push into this sort of revolution, I think we need to understand that all electoral politics under capitalism are part of the capitalist game because there is so much corporate influence in our politics system and it just can't be separated at this point. Yeah, it's all on their it's all on their playing grounds. Uh, how did how did Lenin describe universal suffrage suffrage? Or no, actually, it was Engels. Something like universal suffrage suffrage is just basically a bourgeois way for the ruling class to take the temperature of of the working class. It's nothing more than that. I mean, they can take it away as easily as they give it. It's right. it's not something that's secure. I mean, they're already talking about redistrict, redistricting um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's district right. to get her out of Congress, right. you know? Who's they? Um, the- talking about that. Yeah, I think it's the, um, the, whatever the legislative body that like does the redistricting for- Yeah, who's in charge of gerrymandering? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't actually know is what I realized in this moment. <laughs> Like the state legislature has the primary control of redistricting processes. Okay. So and in New York, that's controlled by Democrats, I believe. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is why historically, at least in the last century, we've seen um, the capitalists, whether they are socially progressive or not, will cede ground more quickly to the fascist right than they will to the capitalist or the communist or socialist left because the fascist right doesn't upend uh, the the power dynamics. It doesn't, it doesn't change the power dynamics. It keeps it in place. Whereas the left leftist movements always want a revolutionary change in power. Yeah. Well, I don't know what else to say about changing this. I, I guess socialism is the answer. You heard it here, folks. Yeah. You heard it here first. Yes. Socialism (laughs) or barbarism. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I just, the only other thing, and I don't mean to like hammer home all of like the negative shit, but I also think like when we think about this, it in terms of a climate lens only, it's so dire and so fucking intense because this obscuring of information and the like pointing of fingers at the these weird things instead of like pointing it to the capitalist system itself is only going to become so much more dangerous as we keep careening towards climate catastrophe. Uh, and so you have nothing to lose but your chains. Yeah. <laughs> and straws. And, stra- <laughs> and straws. Yes. All right. Thanks for tuning in. We have nothing to lose but our chains <laughs> and straws <laughs> and hot water. From my um, cold, dead body, will you take my straws <laughs> and my bottle? From my kidding. cold, dead body. Um, and my moldy metal straws. <laughs> I just can't handle it. I don't think metal, does metal mold? I don't think so. That doesn't seem like science. I don't need your logic here. I think it's gross. <laughs> I have no idea. Hot take, Ambria quote, thinks metal straws are gross. (laughs) Yeah, you can't clean them out. Maybe it's not mold. I don't know what's in there. What if you clank it on your teeth? Also, I'm sure the metal has some sort of questionable lining on the inside. You know, some sort of material. Gotta make sure that shit's BPA-free, am I right? I'm just kidding, because all of it's bad. (laughs) It's all bad. Wow. Anyway, (laughs) follow us. On Twitter at Season of the Bee. <laughs> Email us. We're such a joy, I promise. <laughs> season of the Bee at gmail.com. I think we're fun on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram. Uh, basically, just type in Season of the Bee anywhere you're curious to see if we're there. We might be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Otherwise, um, keep listening. Donate to us on Patreon. Check out our website. Rate and review us and su- subscribe or whatever do all that stuff and uh yeah we'll see you there uh bye guys season of the bitch